Hello and welcome to the BMJ and Nuffield Trust Summit for 2022. And today we're talking about the very important and uh, urgent topic of workforce recovery after COVID. Um, workforce has been a long-standing issue uh, in the NHS and other health systems. It's been brought to the fore to, to a critical uh, situation with the pandemic. Um, and we've had news just last week that possibly up to 400 people are leaving the, the NHS every week. I'm not sure how accurate those figures are. Perhaps we'll find out during the course of this round table. Uh, certainly, it's a, it's a major problem. Um, and it's also an international problem. Uh, but today we're going to focus on the UK, we're going to focus on recovery, we're going to focus on solutions. Um, and I'm delighted to say that we have a really wonderful panel uh, with us today. Um, we have Billy Palmer from the Nuffield Trust, we have Lucina Rolovitz from the Nuffield Trust as well. We have Mark Britnell uh, from KPMG, Neil Greenberg uh, from King's College London, Rose Penfold uh, who's a National Institute for Clinical Research Academic Fellow in Geriatrics, Ramia Matthew, a GP uh, from Islington, Partha Carr, a di uh, diabetes consultant, and Danny Mortimer, Chief Executive of NHS Employers. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing uh, our, our colleagues uh, today. Um, and I, I think what we'd like to do now is really just, just to get going. Um, and the first presentation that we have today is, or the first uh, slot, is Lucina talking about why do staff healthcare workers leave the NHS? Lucina, the topic of the moment. Over to you. Very much. So, yeah, at the Nuffield Trust, uh, we recently published an explainer on the trends and reasons for healthcare staff leaving their role. So just to start with the scale of the retention issue, so in total, around one in nine hospital staff, that's equivalent to 140,000 staff, left active service in the year to September 2021. Now, this does vary by staff group. The rate is almost double for nurses than consultants. But to note, it does include those going on, for example, maternity leave or career break. So these data do need to be interpreted with some caution. Um, there is also a separate data collection covering fully qualified permanent GPs, um, and that suggests that they sit in between the rates of nurses leaving and consultants leaving. And for what I can understand, I think there are some gaps on, for example, the number of other primary care staff leaving their roles. Um, so just moving on to the, the trend in, in retention of NHS staff. Um, the latest annual levels of staff leaving the NHS are generally around pre-pandemic levels, having notably actually dipped during the pandemic. Um, a similar pattern is apparent in the numbers of key clinical staff leaving their profession entirely, with fewer nurses and doctors leaving the registers altogether earlier in the pandemic before increasing in the most recent data. But while current leave rates are fairly typical relative to previous years, there are certainly some reasons for great concern. So firstly, we know that there is residual exhaustion and stress um, from the pandemic. According to the NHS staff survey, a higher proportion of staff that worked in COVID-19 settings felt unwell as a result of work-related stress compared to those who didn't work in COVID-19 settings. But even without this distinction, work-related stress among all NHS staff has increased year on year since 2016. 
Secondly, leave rates have been suppressed more because more staff who are at pensionable age were not retiring during the pandemic. And we can see this now from the age profile of staff. So there is a degree of additional leaving baked in. And thirdly, we know that more staff than usual have taken hard steps to leave. So for example, uh, this includes a near doubling in the proportion of doctors contacting a recruiter or applying for training or roles outside of medicine. And finally, what does the readily available data tell us about why staff are leaving? Um, unfortunately, the administrative data on reasons for leaving is fairly limited. However, those data on those leaving uh, NHS hospital and community roles, and this does include those migrating to different jobs within the NHS, does show stark increases in people citing, for example, work-life balance and also their own health as reasons for leaving. Again, it does appear to vary by staff group, or at least uh, some groups have quite specific issues um, with pensions, taxation, an issue for hospital consultants, and uh, burnout and job satisfaction issues for GPs as well. And also a survey of nurses leaving their register in June in the year to June 2020 did suggest that, as in previous years, there's too much pressure and the workplace culture are some of the key reasons as well. And I think it's also, uh, just to wrap up, I think it is also worth saying that of those that had left since the pandemic started, only around 14% said that the pandemic had influenced their decision. But of course, this was early on in the mm. pandemic and perhaps the full toll on many staff would not have, have yet been felt at that point. Lucina, thank you. I mean, you say, it's interesting that you say the le levels of people leaving are the same as pre-pandemic, but presumably that rate of people leaving the NHS was not, uh, was not a sustainable level. Yeah, I think that there was certainly an issue before the pandemic of, you know, the retention of staff. Um, and, you know, while the levels are looking similar, I mean, there's, there's no, as you say, you know, it is not, it's not a good level to be at for one. Yeah. And um, for two, I mean, you, there might be increases seen in the forthcoming years anyway. Okay. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to to, to this point in particular. Uh, but just to ask you, 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 you say there's some limited data on why people are leaving. Um, is there, a, in terms of comparative data, do you have any idea, has that, have the reasons changed at all pre-pandemic to now? I mean, certainly in the last couple of years or so, um, things like work-life balance and um, uh, staff's own health have increased in terms of the reasons for leaving, but there is a big, um, there's a big kind of unknown of about 15% of reasons for leaving just not being very, very clear. I think it's categorized as something like unknown. So there are, you know, gaps in the data and um, it also includes, it includes staff that are moving within the NHS. Yep. So it's not necessarily that they are leaving entirely. Um, so there's a bit of Okay, the there's situation. a bit of movement within the NHS, is what you're saying. Okay, I'm going to turn now to Mark Brittnell, Mark's um, vice, uh, vice president at the, the KPMG. Mark, I mean, your, your focus is, is, is globally, and uh, this is not just a UK problem. We know that. Um, what do we know about the global picture um, of the healthcare workforce crisis, and what can we learn for, for the UK? Well, um, first of all, we know in the UK, sadly, that we're under clinician by any comparative analysis of the OECD. 
To compound that pressure further, we know that by 2030, the WHO estimates the world will be short of 18 million healthcare workers, which is roughly 21% of the total capacity to care. In, in my book, which was published three years ago, Human Solving the Global Workforce Crisis in Healthcare, uh, we look comparatively at countries, and I think it's fair to say that all countries are struggling, but uh, clearly, if you start from a low base, which we do in the United Kingdom, uh, you just make that problem even more challenging. So um, recently, I've done um, a bit more work uh, looking at global comparators. There are some green shoots appearing now in some countries. So specifically, I can think about Singapore, I can think about um, the Netherlands, I can think about Italy, just to give you three examples, where their mm. governments have now realised that the healthcare workforce is no longer a cost, but a value. And they have come to realise this through two ways. One, uh, uh, the hard lessons first, that those um, countries that were understaffed relative to others found it more difficult to come out of COVID and thus economic recession. And secondly, of course, because of the issue uh, that's just been raised, that this issue now about work-life balance, being in control of your work, which is especially important to the professional classes in the NHS, uh, that uh, sadly has been further undermined during COVID. So uh, I think um, what's interesting uh, is to think about the 140,000 staff that left last year, but also then to juxtapose that and think about the number of staff recruited. And my guess would be that those two numbers are not equal. So we are in a more perilous situation now coming out of COVID than we were before. And our position was already weakened because of the historic underinvestment in clinical staff over the last 10, 12 years or so. So as far as I can see globally, <clears throat> everyone now is thinking about how to recruit, how to retain, um, some countries are being, I think, more sophisticated in the application of capital investment in terms of digital technologies. I'm sure we'll come back to that later on. But also, uh, I think the quality of management, the quality of line management we know, um, especially for junior staff and some senior staff as well, makes or breaks the working environment for a particular individual. And therefore, I think if we are placing more pressure now on the health service, which we are as we come out of COVID, um, we need to double down on the way that people are managed and also be attentive to their work-life balance and their personal needs. But one final thing I would say, uh, I was in Canada recently, and I was surprised to find that um, in Vancouver, uh, BC, for example, Nurses are, are paid um, up to $90,000 Canadian dollars, which is a decent salary and certainly a good nurse salary in terms of global comparators. They were still experiencing a nurse vacancy rate, which was touching 10% or so. And that got me thinking about whether this is an existential crisis in the sense that have we really acknowledged the new nature or the modern nature of what it is to be a professional? and the psychological contract between the give and the get. And I hope that we can explore that further as the session today goes on. Thanks. Mark, thank you very much. Uh, very interesting to hear about those international examples. You know, when you talk about give and, give and get, in some of those green shoots uh, that, that you mentioned, where, where there are green shoots in some of those places, can you tell us a little bit more about what those green shoots are and what people are doing? Is there more give than get in those places? 
Well, I, yes, I would say um, probably three things strike me. The, the first one is if you're fairly well staffed as a country, then people want to work in an environment which supports their professional development and also supports their professional practice. If you're continually understaffed, of course, you get burnt out. That's not a pleasurable professional experience. You'll think about your options for the future, point one. Point two, in certain countries, when you think about doctors, for example, I don't want to over exaggerate this point, but there is an uptake, of course, in doctors in this country looking to say Australia or Canada. And we know that working conditions, if you're a doctor in Australia or in Canada, they're still difficult, of course, there's still burnout. But in terms of the scope for professional autonomy and professional responsibility, many people that leave this country and go and work in those two countries feel that they have more professional fulfillment. And thirdly, I think this relates to issue about independent or independence of clinical practice. How far do doctors, for example, or indeed any clinicians, but specifically doctors in this instance, feel they're working for their patients or working for a political system that conspires against them giving their best? Mm. So, um, of course, you know, the grass is always greener and often it's not. But I would say, having worked in 81 countries over the last 13 years, that there are now, I think, there's a, a, a clear a gap or difference between those countries that are thinking very hard about their staffing levels mm. and those still that are really at the starting blocks. And we know, for example, over the last two or three years in the UK, there have been at least one, if not two, false dawns in terms of um, a new workforce strategy. And it was good to hear Amanda this morning speak about this being one of her top priorities. Of course, it should be. Uh, but we need to do more and we need this workforce plan sooner rather than later. It shouldn't be too traditional in my, my view, and I'm sure we can explore that later on. Yeah. OK, Mark, thank you for that. Um, before I go to uh, Neil Greenberg, uh, Billy, you, you just uh, uh, shared a stat about the number of people leaving um, health and social care on a daily basis. Would you just like to, sh to explain that? Yeah, it's, it's in terms of um, giving an indication of the scale of uh, the retention issue. So actually it's for NHS hospital and community staff, it uh, translates to about 380 staff leaving every day. Um, and just, you know, that, that's, that's a large number in itself. That's a cause for concern, but also there is an opportunity attached to that. You know, if we learned from those 380 and then try to make that 379 the following day uh, and so on, you've got opportunities there. Okay, thank you. Um, right, I'm now going to turn to Neil Greenberg. Uh, Neil, could you tell us what we know about the impact of COVID on the well-being and, and mental health of um, healthcare staff? So um, I, I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we know. So both from a Royal College of Psychiatrists viewpoint, but also we have a big study run out of King's College London called NHS Check, which has got about 25,000 uh, NHS staff and importantly, this study is across the whole of, of the healthcare uh, workforce. So it's not just doctors and nurses, it's everybody who makes a healthcare workforce uh, uh, do their job. Yeah. It's important to say we don't know a lot about the mental health of healthcare workers before COVID. Um, we, there hasn't been good studies, which is really unfortunate considering they're such an important group. Um, what we do know, and is exactly the same in other industries as well, is that if you have poor mental health, you've both got staff who don't turn up and who leave, but you've also got presenteeism. So you've got staff who are at work who are not delivering a high quality of care. And that's a really important uh, issue uh, for the staff, but also for the patients who we are all here to treat. 
Yeah. Um, most of the surveys that have existed and that you will have seen uh, published over the last couple of years are based upon incredibly small uh, samples and incredibly poor response rates. So we've got about 25,000 staff in, in, our, in our study. And what's interesting there is when you look at a, a self-report measure of, say, PTSD, and people like to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, mm -hmm. you find rates of 25, 30, 40 percent. We've done a very carefully conducted clinical study which showed that the real rate of PTSD across the NHS is around 9 percent. Now, that's still a really high figure. It's about double you find in the general population, but it's not the 30, 40 percent that you see published, which, of course, make us all very worried. Um, who's more at risk? Well, actually, um, very similar to the general population, young people, uh, females more than males, those with dependents. But also it's unsurprising that it's those who are um, more junior, less experienced and in the nursing workforce as well. And those who have worked outside of their normal role. One of the things that people have talked about a lot is about are there specific groups who are more at risk than others? And actually what's been quite surprising from our study is actually the risk is kind of shared across the whole of the NHS. Um, yes, there have been times that intensive care workers have been more at risk, but, but actually when you look at the whole period of COVID um, that we have good data on, it's everybody. So we have to be careful not to look too much at specific groups and say this group's special and this group's not. Now, uh, whilst the most important thing for good mental health uh, actually is all the things that have been talked about so far, so you know, having the right number of staff, paying them properly, you know, conditions of work, making sure they can park their car and not have to you know, pay to do that sort of things, you know, the very basic Maslow's level of support. We know that there is good evidence that making sure that teams work well to support each other uh, makes a big difference. So um, making sure that all everybody who's in a supervisory position uh, can speak about mental health with their staff uh, is absolutely critical. Uh, much of our research work or my research work has been on military personnel who clearly, you know, go to funny places and do funny things. But what we know from that and from other industries is that if you have a supervisor who feels capable of speaking about mental well-being with their staff, and, and you would think healthcare workers would feel that way, but actually I can tell you many of them don't, that makes a very substantial difference on both staff mental health, but also on people's ability to perform and to stay in their role. Um, so training up supervisors to, to supervise in terms of mental health is really important. And other things such as having really effective peer support systems in place, having reflective practice and making sure we don't just rely on psychiatrists and counsellors and therapists to, to deliver mental health in the workplace. Mental health in the workplace should come from within the team. It should come from within the supervisors, the managers and the colleagues. And yes, we need mental health uh, professionals to deliver care and treatment. But actually, sometimes there's an over-reliance on thinking, well, what we've got to do is refer someone to a psychologist and it'll all be OK. Well, actually, that, that, that's not the ideal situation. The ideal situation is to manage it in, 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 within the team. Um, and I think it's important to think that what we need to do is to make sure that people's mental health is good, going back to what I said earlier, because we want them to deliver high-quality care. And actually, you know, many staff suffer with what we call moral injuries, which is a situation where they, they feel unable to deliver the care they want to uh, because of the situation they find themselves in. COVID has brought that into focus, but actually that's been the case for, for many, many years. And we need to find ways uh, to make sure that staff feel capable uh, of delivering the care that we know that the patients need and that actually the staff, the staff want to do. So I think just finishing my bit now is 
looking to the future, I, I don't think mental health of um, healthcare workers is a particularly new topic. I mean, it's, it's, it's been problematic for a long time, but I really hope that the catalyst that COVID created does actually place um, mental health support at work for healthcare staff you know, as front and centre because it's good for them, but it's also good for the, for the output of the healthcare systems that, that we are hoping to, to, to have. Neil, thanks very much. Uh, just a couple of questions before I open up for kind of broader discussion. Uh, you say PTSD levels, you say there are 9% uh, in healthcare staff, and, and that's, um, that's higher than the general population. How does that compare with other frontline workers, people working in the police force and firefighters? Do we have data on that? We, we do have data. We don't have great data. Uh, yeah. but, it, you know, but if you look at, say, police, for instance, your fire rates are between 4 and 10%. The highest rate we find in military veterans who have left the military, who have served in combat roles, is 17%. That's the okay. very highest Gosh. rate we find. Um, yeah. But, I, but I, I think, I think what we're saying is that you know, if, if nearly 10% of the workforce in, in the NHS have got PTSD, and we know PTSD impairs people's abilities to do their job, I mean, that, that suggests that we need an occupationally focused service that's attractive and effective to make sure that NHS staff who have got those sort of problems haven't necessarily got to wait, you know, months and months and years and years to get the right treatment because it's an own goal, isn't it? Not to have your own staff capable of, of delivering high quality care. Yeah, just to kind of pick up and confirm that point. I mean, clearly we, it's a received wisdom that if, if staff or their mental health and well-being is looked after, that will improve quality of care and patient care. But presumably there's evidence to support that, Neil. There, 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 there absolutely is. There, yeah. there are a variety of studies uh, which, which show exactly that, that you can, it's, it's more the other way around, that you show that actually poor quality, poor mental health leads to poor quality outcomes. You're right, it, we need to do the other way around is to show that when we improve the mental <laughs> yeah. health that that leads to better outcomes. But, but the presenteeism agenda across industry generally tells us that, and, and it would be very unusual if healthcare workers were any different. Great, thank you very much. Uh, and so thanks to Lucina, Mark and Neil for really setting the scene um, really excellently there. Uh, we're gonna open up for, for discussion and, and a, a solutions orientated conversation. Um, and so the, the question that we're really asking now our, our panelists is what changes would staff like to see introduced to improve wellbeing and retention, bearing all of that in mind that we've heard. And what solutions do they know possibly that have been tried and and and, and could be implemented more broadly. So um, first of all, I'm going to go to Rose, who's uh, uh, working in geriatrics and is an academic clinical fellow. Rose, Rose Penfold. Thank you, Cameron. Um, yeah, so I'm a, currently a geriatrics registrar based in South London. And ahead of the call today, I spoke to quite a lot of my colleagues um, about some of the issues that, that they faced um, and reasons perhaps why they've thought about or have left um, the NHS as, as trainee doctors. I think perhaps the, the first key theme I'd pick out from all of that is around flexibility or a lack of flexibility. Um, so by that, I mean both kind of geographical flexibility, so movement between different training regions, perhaps due to a change in personal circumstance or due to a new training opportunity opening up somewhere else. Um, and I think also flexibility around rotoring and rostering um, and around the um, hours that uh, trainees are required to work. So I guess talking about some of the sort of geographical flexibility issues, um, one of the issues that I might face imminently and several of my colleagues have um, is about movement of national training numbers between regions. And I think historically that has been um, very difficult to do. 
Um, not only do you have to have sort of a statutory reason for doing it, um, but you also have to show very detailed evidence of that. And I think removal of some of those barriers um, could enable people to move between regions and stay within the workforce when otherwise they may be forced to leave entirely. Um, so I think that's something we should really be thinking about. I think in terms of sort of rotoring and rostering, um, certainly acknowledge that um, as trainees, we need to get good out of hours experience. And a lot of that comes through working antisocial hours, nights and weekend shifts. However, I think e-rostering and e-rotoring um, do open up new opportunities for more flexible working. Um, and also we need to acknowledge personal circumstances in that. And certainly a lot of my current um, peers who are registrars um, in, in London, a lot of them have wanted to work um, less than full time or to change the hours that they work. Um, and actually um, facilitating that, I think, would allow people to stay um, within the workforce more easily. And it is something that's been tried, it's been piloted and shown to be very successful. And I think something that can be and should be rolled out more widely. I think flexibility would be one of the first things I'd want to, to touch on. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's really helpful. In fact, I mean, I mean, when Mark mentioned autonomy, I mean, of yeah. course, it's clinical autonomy, being able yeah. to decide what you want to do with the patient. It's also autonomy in terms of you know, how you shape your career, where you work and Absolutely. the opportunities open up to you that open up to you. Absolutely. OK, Rose, thank you. Um, uh, Ramia, uh, same question to you. Yeah, Cameron, I'd, I'd want to sort of set the scene for primary care a little bit there. Yeah, do. Yeah, um, I mean, it's a very important issue. Yeah, yeah so I, I feel like in the time since I've started as a GP and probably over the last 10 to 15 years or so, um, workload has just increased exponentially within primary care. Um, and this is both in terms of the number of patient contacts, but also the complexity of the work that we're dealing with. Um, there has been a huge transfer of work from secondary care into primary care, and the, the resources just haven't accompanied that movement. And I think we're now sort of really facing the fallout of that. Um, I'd say the, the average sort of number of contacts that we have with GPs would be around, you know, 40. Uh, a day, which I think is astronomical. Um, and each, each patient doesn't come to us with one, one problem. It's on average two to three problems that people present to us with. Um, and that's just the patient facing work we do. Um, you've got to keep in mind that actually there's all the administrative work that goes on in the background. So um, the dealing of blood test results, the issuing of repeat prescriptions, dealing with all the hospital letters that come through. Um, so, I think the, the way that we've had to manage this is to work harder, faster, longer. Um, so most of us are now taking work home. We're logging back in. Um, what is meant to be an eight hour and 20 minute day is easily morphing into 10 to 12 hours. Um, and, you know, pe people are looking at asking that question of where is work-life balance? And also, how am I going to sustain this for 10, 15, 20 years? And I think the NHS is facing a real challenge because there's lots of other sort of private providers creeping up, offering quite sort of attractive roles for GPs now that are offering that sort of flexibility, um, that, you know, the defined working hours, the autonomy. So I think, you know, we're in a really crucial and critical place in that something needs to happen, something needs to change. Um, and there are there are some promising sort of things that are taking place, which I'll, which I'll touch on because I want to be a bit solutions focused here as well. Um, so there's the GP retainer scheme. So similar to what Rose mentioned, it's a, a scheme introduced by NHS England, um, which offers GPs um, some flexibility in terms of how they work. Um, it's, it's targeted at those people who would otherwise leave general practice. 
um, either because they just can't cope with the sort of um, full workload um, or because they've got other caring responsibilities. And it allows them to um, like either choose defined hours or choose a defined work schedule, say that they're not going to contribute to certain aspects of, of clinical care. And of course, it's not ideal, but it, it's allowing us to sort of maintain people within the workforce who would otherwise leave, which I think is incredibly important. Um, we've also got the additional role scheme, which has come in um, via the primary care um, network. We've reached a position where we're able to recruit in um, first contact physiotherapists, um, mental health practitioners, um, social um, prescribers, and actually, the you know this this additional workforce is making a difference on the on the ground. Um, so previously, I, I'd be left dealing with you know patients who have issues with housing or benefits or debt, and, and these are really hard things to solve, and they take time. Um, so the ability to sort of delegate some of that work out is, is taking some pressure off us. We're, we're only at the very beginning of that journey, though. And I think, you know, there's a lot more that can be done to build upon that. Great. Rami, thank you. Actually, you there's an interesting theme in what you said about the, the diverse range of tasks that a, a GP is asked to do. And if we would say, and if this is rural India or China or Africa, we'd say, well, we're, ne we're never going to recruit enough doctors to be able to deliver the quality of care that we need. We need other people in the healthcare team uh, to, to help deliver that care. And, um, and what you've described is a bit of that thinking coming into these additional roles that you spoke about. And perhaps that's, we need, we need to go further down that route whilst also trying to recruit GPs. But I, I guess we'll, we'll come back to that. Thanks, Ramya. Uh, Partha, now, uh, let's hear the kind of hospital perspective from you. So... I think we've talked a lot about what the system can do and should do and look at what we can do differently. I'm going to basically say that I don't think we look enough as to what we can do, if I'm honest. I think, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples whereby I think we as consultants within secondary care probably can do more with junior doctors, with trainees, and I don't think we do. That pastoral role has been lost. You know, and all this narrative of that a lot of seniors, a lot of seniors do engage in, and we know they do, of, you know, in my time, I used to come in and sweep the floors and lick the, lick the ground from four o'clock in the morning. I was there, right? Yes, we did work hard, but we had lots of other perks. These guys don't. I wasn't there filling out the board and filling out 55 different forms either. Life was very different to now. And I think we forget that a lot. Mm. And I don't think we do enough with our trainees. You know, when you see examples, I'll give you one example, which created, drew a lot of attention, which was, uh, well, I was supposed to go for my wedding and uh, HR did not let me go. Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, where was your <laughs> consultant? I can tell you exactly what would happen if that was with my trainee. That person would go for her, her or his wedding. Hmm. It's, I think consultants ignore the power they have sometimes or feel too beaten down by the system, whatever it be. I don't think it takes that long to make your trainees a cup of tea or coffee or sit down or walk along the way and say, well done and stuff. I don't think we do enough of that. And if you go back a few years to, and I'll finish with this, we talk about the junior doctors contract strike and all that sort of, a lot of it was not just about the pay. It, a lot of it was about just value us a little bit more. And a lot of it was about seniors not doing that. And that, that reminds me, I mean, lots of trainees say that to me and I think that's fair. And you can probably see that on social media as well. So that would be my thing. I think in secondary care, we can do better. There are some teams we can learn from. 
I think some teams do it better than others, I would say. Some areas are much better placed and they put a lot of onus on pastoral role. And that is quite important. And I don't think that happens enough. Yeah, I mean, I think the point you make about teams is a very good one. I mean, back in the day, I'm at risk of saying, yeah, of going all nostalgic here. Um, uh, yes, you know, it's very busy being a, a junior doctor, but there was that sense of having a team, which I think Rose, Rose perhaps there isn't the same sense now. And, um, and, and that also touches on the point of, you're talking about the, the supervision, the mentorship, I think is one of the themes that has, that has uh, come up today yeah, I'm to, uh, but i'm wondering I'm just, I'm just going to say one on. thing is that i think yeah. the mentorship, if you go back to the, the mentorship has become very tick box bring me your portfolio yeah. let me go through your things let me tick your things let me do your cbd let me do your this let me do your acats that's all great but i think a lot of our mentorship was also about how you're doing what's going on what's happening in yeah. your life have yeah. you been out and what's going on you know you don't seem to be the, your usual self and that time seems to have gone because lots of the time, quite understandably, ARCBs are on the corner and you get your junior going like, can you just fill out this form for me? And you go like, mm. okay, <laughs> right, what are we doing? So yeah. that, that's the thing that probably... Yeah, thanks, Partha. Danny? Um, thanks ever so much. And um, thank you, everyone, for your, your comments as well. I just to acknowledge this with three things in particular um, before I go on and make my remarks. Um, the first is that there are some, some specific challenges in the, the medical workforce. Um, particularly because of the way in which we've we've chosen to, to structure education um, uh, over this last um, 20 years. Um, and they are specific to the medical workforce. Um, and there is, as Parth has touched on, there are some specialties that do better with this than, than others, particularly around this question of flexibility. And the second is, as, as Mark touched on, um, supply is a really important factor in retention. Um, it gets harder to to sustain doing the extra hours, working the extra shifts, um, particularly if you aren't given some sense um, by uh, the government. And this is a government issue. This is a treasury issue of, of what the plan is for the future. And the third is that there is a there is absolutely a mismatch, a very clear sense of mismatch now between the expectations that are placed on people. Um, and this, this was true before the pandemic. It's even truer now. Um, the expectations that are placed on our services. And I think Ramio talked about that in terms of primary care, but we see that in every service, community services, mental health services, ambulance services, as well as in, in hospital services. What we do know is that there are things that employers can do that'll make a difference. And, and the, the things that I will touch on are, are drawn on um, work that we've done with the chief nursing officer and her team um, around retaining nurses. Um, and it's five or more years of work now um, and there are, there are three or four things that come out as particularly important that employers can do. The first is there is something about focusing on new starters in particular. And in the nursing workforce, that's the highest point of risk. Nurses are more likely to leave the profession, so leave the profession entirely in their first two or three years after graduating. And so that need to focus on our new colleagues is really important. That's even truer now because of the disruption that people suffered to their education during the pandemic, because they, they came into practice rather than, than participating in formal education. The second is that we see that organisations that invest seriously in conversations about career development, again, this is particularly for nursing, but it's true for other professions as well, that that makes a real difference. And there are some fantastic examples of, of organisations around the country that have done that and have seen a real difference to retention. The third thing, and this point has already been made by my medical colleagues, the point about flexibility, by which many nurses actually mean predictability, is really important. 
We've got a massive cultural change still to make there in terms of attitudes to flexibility. And this isn't just about flexibility for young people. It isn't just about flexibility for people who've got childcare responsibilities. It's about all of us wanting a very different relationship with how we plan our work. And for people like Partha and I, frankly, we put up with things in our formative years that we're no longer prepared to put up with. And people like Rose, who are at an earlier stage of their career, rightly are expecting things that we probably should have expected 20, 30 years ago when we were coming through. And then the final thing, and, and this has come back into kind of start relief now because of the, the pandemic, um, is that organisations that can find um, more innovative and flexible ways of managing retirement also can retain, retain colleagues. And the final thing I would say is that you know, Neil in particular has stimulated um, a huge amount of focus on, on health and well-being um, during the course of the pandemic. Um, and we are seeing that there are practical things that employers are doing that make a difference. And sometimes the simplest things are the most important. There is something about the kind of um, conditions that we've allowed to develop where it's, um, we celebrate people who don't take a break. We celebrate the people who, who work too many hours. And, and actually we need to push back against that. People need their breaks. They need their rest period. And, and in, in some ways, um, that point about the junior doctors dispute that Partha made is a really important one. Junior doctors were clear that they wouldn't be messed about uh, in terms of the way in which they, they worked and they were expected to work. Um, and we need similar attitudes and responses um, elsewhere in the workforce as well in terms of that kind of just quality of day-to-day -day work, the valuing of giving people proper rest within work and between periods of work. We've got a long way to go uh, in that respect. Danny, thank you very much. A couple of questions. When you, you say flexibility, but that means predictability, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? So it's about people having uh, proper notice of their, their shift patterns. Um, so in the nursing workforce, you know, particularly um, uh, in the kind of more acute settings, it is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week um, um, shift-based system, and you, you rotate, in effect, through those um, shifts. It's about giving you proper notice. It's about um, having some trade-offs in terms of... Um, when you work. Um, so, you know, th this isn't a binary thing. Some of that is, in my experience, it's a negotiation. It's about a, a nursing colleague who can say, well, look, I can only, I'd really rather work Tuesdays and Wednesdays during the day because that fits my personal circumstances. And it's about a manager perhaps then saying to that individual, well, okay, well, look, could you commit to kind of help me out one weekend a month? And there's a compromise that's mm -hmm. achieved there, but you then have a sense of yeah. what the working pattern is going to be um, through the through the year or yeah. for a quarter or whatever it may be. And, um, colleagues can then okay. plan their lives. Yeah, un understood. Thank you. And then you mentioned that uh, in some professions uh, there is uh, innovative retirement. What examples of that are there? So, it's, um, so some of the best examples we've seen in, in nursing um, have been linking some of the factors together that I've talked about. So um, you know, career development, um, mm -hmm. mentorship schemes that, that draw on the experience of um, colleagues who've retired and who've returned. Um, um, so that's that. You know, there are some fantastic examples of that. Look at UCLH. Look at um, Books Healthcare. Um, the second is also then um, changing the attitude towards um, senior colleagues who uh, access their pension and retire, but are allowed to come back on a kind of part-time basis, um, and that's supported by their by their colleagues as well as by the by the um, by the organisation. So again, sometimes innovation is relatively simple things, but it's about the attitudes we have. Um, to colleagues who are perhaps into their 60s and have accessed their pension 
and recognizing yep. that they still have a lot to lot to offer. Okay, Tony, thank you. Mark, your final comment from you on this section. Well, of course, when you look at the supply side in terms of uh, clinicians, you have to think about recruitment and retention. And I think what's nice about our conversation today is we're focusing on retention whilst we know that recruitment will need to come. Um, the best workforce strategies I've seen around the world give hope in the short term and more hope in the longer term. What do I mean by that? Well, the first thing you need to have is a plan. And where you've got the National Health Service, which is a monopoly or near monopoly employer of doctors and nurses in this country, it's important to now signpost over the next five and 10 years exactly how many more colleagues will be joining their ranks. Uh, and sadly, we, uh, for reasons that Danny has just touched on, we have failed to do that. So you need to give long-term hope. And then tactically, you need to work through every single issue that is stopping uh, retention being as buoyant as it could be. And I come back to this issue. When you look at, there was a study done uh, a few years ago, uh, looking at the then 28 member states of the European Union. And they looked at reasons why uh, during different cycles of your career, so 18 to 24, 24 to 35, 35 to 46, and so on, why people were either demotivated or motivated. And depending on what point of your career you are, and of course your age, it will be a combination of four or five factors. And these four or five factors are pay. So if you're younger and thinking about with your partner starting a family or indeed looking for a house, pay is pretty important. And then what we found is as you go on through your career, you then have issues such as time to care and work-life balance. And then as you start to mature and become more senior, status and recognition is also very important. And one of the things which I think is, is sad about uh, some of the discussions we have in the NHS is that we think one job description or one uh, job contract will serve that individual uh, throughout the course of their lives. But we could be doing a lot more about that and making sure that we have more bespoke solutions as people pass through their career. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. I know Billy wants to come in very quickly. Billy. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on some of the uh, sort of policy leaders. And, and, and that's just, there's some really compelling um, and eloquent examples given by the clinicians here. They're you know, working on the front line, giving the examples. And what was striking to me is that they didn't mention pay, um, except almost to say that it was, it was a side issue. Um, and that's quite distinct from how people might try to characterize the debate based on you know what they might read from um first representative bodies or, or in the media and i don't want to pretend that pay doesn't matter uh, you clearly need to get it right for the sake of the clinicians and other employers for the nhs and and for the taxpayer but you know as discussed by others you, you need to get it right within a wider package of how to value staff time permits i just wanted to pick up one other area that we um sort of been mm -hmm. touched on but perhaps deserves a little bit more airtime, which is around uh, workplace culture and addressing inequalities. Um, it's an area that you know, we've published a report, in fact, funded by uh, NHS employers looking at diversity of the NHS workforce. We know that workplace culture is a key reason why people leave. You know, that's in uh, staff surveys and the sort of related issues uh, appear in, across all staff groups in, in the surveys when they're asked. Um, we know from the staff surveys, one in eight NHS staff faced discrimination in the last year. We know that Bangladeshi 
uh, candidates who are shortlisted are half as likely than white British people to be uh, appointed from that shortlist. There's all sorts of sort of issues which might be stopping people progressing and therefore they might be considering mm. leaving. Um, and it's not just about protected characteristics. You know, this is a, um, this is of course you know, a range of different uh, uh, characteristics. Um, and we know that it's uh, about the high rates of uh, harassment, bullying and abuse. It's complex. Other sectors struggle with it as well. But what we mm. try to draw out in that report is that there are practical things that you can do to help identify the issue, to help work out what solutions are evidence based in addressing those and actually ensuring you have the capacity to implement them. Because it's not easy and we can't just expect just to you know, ask hospitals and, and, and other employers just to do more. You have to provide the capacity to do that. Mm. Billy, thank you very much. Uh, we've got into the talking about policy levers, which we wanted to do next in any case. So thanks, Billy, for, for introducing that. Danny? So there's a few things. I mean, I, th- I think the things around the actions to take to support retention, put the medical workforce to one side, because there are some, as I said, there's some particular challenges there. But in other parts of the workforce, we know we have the evidence. We don't need the pay review body to tell us what the evidence is in terms of the practical actions that employers can, um, can, can take. Um, particularly in our largest professional group nursing, but, but the lessons apply elsewhere. Um, and whilst we've had a couple of goes at a workforce strategy, um, and we have an incomplete workforce strategy for the NHS now because um, colleagues haven't been allowed to include numbers in it, actually it spells out what needs to be done. And I think it spells it out really clearly and um, we don't need another inquiry or another review to, do, to decide what to do. So that's the first thing to say. I think the second thing to say is that for some parts of our workforce, um, the pay and reward agenda is becoming more important. The labour market now um, is intensely pressurised, particularly for our non-clinical staff groups who have a much more portable set of skills than, than the clinical colleagues that we've, we've largely been talking about here. And so actually, <clears throat> for the first time in four years, the NHS um, is paying less than the equivalent of the real living wage, actually, because just the way that the pay increases have come through. And uh, in my members are absolutely reporting that it's much harder to recruit the kind of entry-level posts, the administrators, the healthcare assistants, um, the estates and facilities staff that make up a really vital 25% of our organisations. Um, and that's, you know, some action is needed there and some thought is needed there. There are some really positive things that this government has done. Medical schools have been dramatically expanded. There's been a real focus on nurse recruitment, particularly international recruitment. You know, terrific work being done, um, done there. There's been investment in medical associate professionals. There's been a, an astonishing expansion of, expansion of physiotherapy numbers. But what we don't have is a total account which tells us what's the difference that those things are going to make and helps us understand where the other priority areas are. Um, you know, what's happening in mental health nursing as opposed to acute nursing? What's happening in some of the smaller hours health professions? What does the picture look in primary care, as Sammy mm-hmm. has said, relative to acute hospitals? Because, and again, let's you know, Simon was really, Simon Stevens was really clear about this when he spoke in the House of Lords recently. The Treasury will not allow the NHS and the Department of Health to publish a workforce strategy that has numbers in it. And that's mm-hmm. a nonsense. It's a nonsense in terms of planning. But it's also a nonsense in giving people hope. And Mark is absolutely right to use that word. Hope that help is coming in the short term and hope that help is coming in the long term and that there is a plan. So, so Danny, so you're saying we do have a workforce strategy in case there's any doubt. People 
there is a strategy. What we don't have is a plan with numbers. Yeah, so we, we, we have a partial strategy, I, I guess is the fairest oh, way of okay. describing it. So right. it, it speaks to yeah. the cultural points that we talk about. It speaks to um, um, the points we've made about policies and practices, particularly around flexibility. All of those things are in the people plan that was published 18 months ago. They're captured in the people promise. They are things that have been set out for, for employers. Um, what we okay. don't have is that you know, the, the, the bit that says, well, look, this is the work we need to do and this is the this is the people we need to do it and this is the innovation that we need to we need to put in place to explore different roles or to invest in capital or technology to try and mitigate some of that that demand. Okay. Uh, Mark, can, uh, can we go back to you, Mark, now for, you know, what's the way forward? What would you like to see introduced? Yeah. You've already given you know, many, many, a range of ideas, but what would you prioritise now? Well, um, I... Two things. First of all, um, everyone needs to understand, including Her Majesty's Treasury, that globally in healthcare, we face a future of too much work with too few workers. So the traditional way that we restrict supply through various collusions or negotiations between uh, trade unions, the government and the Royal Colleges, uh, we need to really turn all the taps on whilst metaphorically putting the plug in the bath because uh, we can employ uh, as many doctors, nurses and, and uh, other clinical professionals in the full knowledge that they will never be made redundant because they will always be needed. Uh, the most important thing I want to say, and I've really enjoyed this facilitated discussion today, is that um, uh, there has now been a commitment from the Secretary of State for a new workforce plan. Let's hope it's third time lucky. What I say in my book is that actually um, we need to appeal to Treasury. And uh, I think there's a hard-nosed business case where on average now globally, 10.4% of a country's GDP is spent on healthcare. Uh, healthcare now during COVID is now the single largest employer on the planet. We are spending a lot of money at the moment on agency and locums. That can be repurposed, it can be repatriated back to creating uh, more jobs which are more fulfilling. So my own view would be, if we do get an opportunity now to think of a, a new workforce strategy with numbers, we take the fight to Treasury because healthcare is a value, not a cost. Mark, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> um, that's a comment that I would fully endorse. Thank you very much for that. Um, okay, let, let's go around uh, for Final comments. Neil, I'm going to begin with you. Um, what, what are the ways forward? Um, what would you prioritise? Thanks very much. Just moving on from Mark's comment, which I completely agree with, you know, at strategic yeah. level, no problems, absolutely more money. From a tactical level, from a scientific point of view, great studies done, randomised controlled, high quality evidence showing that actually if you train up supervisors how to have psychologically savvy conversations, you, you reduce sickness absence by about 90% in trauma exposed organisations. You know, so putting in a small amount of money to make sure that all of our NHS supervisors can properly chat to staff about mental health pays huge, huge dividends. And aligned to that, what I want to see from a tactical level, but put, put in as a strategy, is that actually we need to make sure that all of our teams, and there have to be teams, are, are supported places that people want to, want to work. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for that, Neil. Um, Lucina. Um, 
probably a bit of a researchy answer and I think I've touched on it but that's um, good we like research <laughs> <laughs> given that um the data on reasons for leaving is collected by NHS trust through the electronic staff records I think improvements could be made regarding uh, the collection of this data mm -hmm. so I think I mentioned at the moment around 15 percent of reasons that staff have given for leaving are filed under other or not known and we also need to make sure that we can distinguish who's actually leaving the service rather than those moving from one NHS organisation to the next. Thanks, Sina. Uh, Rose. Thank you, Cameron. So I think we've touched on a lot of things today. And one of the things we talked about was obviously poly policy levers that um, we can use. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that I'd really like to see is ensuring that sort of any policy that's brought in um, at a high level is able to filter down through engagement of the whole system. And I guess using the flexible mm -hmm. training pilots as an example of that. So it's one thing to have to introduce through HE um, flexible training for all trainees and all specialties in, in England. Um, but then it really needs engagement of the training programme directors and the consultants to create a culture in which trainees feel enabled to access that. And I think certainly amongst many of my colleagues, that's one thing they've experienced is that, you know, they've come across this idea and this pilot, but being able to get sort of permission to do that through their training program directors and consultants has been challenging. It comes back to some of the points Partha was making earlier as well about consultants um, and sort of uh, senior um, clinicians in the NHS have a role to play in changing the culture for trainees as well. So I think that's what I'd like to see um, is more engagement throughout the whole system with these new ideas coming from the top. Good, thanks Rose. Well, you mentioned him, Partha, final comments. Um, so Three quick things. One is, uh, so as some of you know, um, I do the national role for medical director of equality. And all I can tell you in the first seven mm. months, this is a proper viper's pit. Uh, and I don't even, mm. I mean, some of the cases you pick up, you just go like, why would you want to continue working? It's as mm. straightforward as mm. that. And yeah. the system needs to be much more robust. We've got a people's directorate. We need, you know, that's been established. It's got a purpose and its purpose is to help in retention, what we're all talking about. Well, let's give some more teeth and more power and, you know, a little bit more oomph into it rather than completely. So if you need to have the national focus into that area about retention. So I think that would be said. And locally, I would also say one of the big things I also talk about, and I think Billy mentioned about it, is there are examples is important. I think we always do get quite rightly sucked in the narrative of everything being bad and it's not right. There are also some great examples. And I think people need to see that, that the NHS isn't completely destroyed everywhere, right? You know, it's fundamentally mm. different in lots of specialties. Well, let's put those examples out as to what's possible and what's not. And I think I would really like to see some of that out there to say to colleagues, this is what's happening, right? It's possible in the same NHS. Why don't you try that? Great, Partha, thanks very much. Um, Ramya. Yeah, uh, Cameron, I think I've sort of touched on policy levers, but I'd like to probably end yeah. by um, talking about the value of coming together, particularly in sort of general practice. Um, and I think that sort of that emphasis on um, bringing together the team and having that space to, you know, share clinical problems, but also to to actually just talk about life and you know you've got to remember most of us spend mm. our like waking hours the majority of our waking hours at work and I think yeah. at the moment the sad reality is most of us sit in our consulting rooms and have very little interaction with our colleagues and to restore that sense of well-being we've got to have that time and space to meet together 
um, you know, to, to share what's going on in our own lives, but also, you know, to talk about patients, it's, it's good for them and it's good for us. Very good, Ramia, thank you. Um, thanks to everybody. Uh, it's been a really helpful uh, conversation. I think very constructive um, and very deeply analytical. Uh, we're delighted to have Nigel Edwards here, Chief Executive of the Nuffield Trust. Nigel, uh, final comments from you. Well, thank you. There are loads of uh, very interesting things. I'd, not a huge amount to add. Just uh, perhaps things that I haven't heard that we I might we might have heard more of, or we perhaps should give more emphasis to. I think Partha and others have made the point about she's there is quite a lot that is in control of the system, um, and I think more emphasis on that. I haven't. There's there's a, a big issue about being able to control workload, and it led me to think that. Um, just talking to one of my colleagues who's a consultant to acute medicine, perhaps we've not paid enough attention to the content of the work that people are doing as well as mm. the volume mm. of whether it is actually is whether it, it, it we've stripped out some of the things that made it um, made it worth doing or would we understand enough about that. Yeah. The third thing I haven't perhaps heard as much as I'd expect was um, changing people's role and how they work and what they do over the course of their career. We've heard a bit of that in relation to people close to retirement, but whether actually we should be giving more thought to how we shape that. But the overall thing I think that, that's perhaps most significant, and it's a, it's a group that don't pay, get enough attention, is people who are in supervisory and kind of quasi-managerial positions, and that includes consultants, uh, ward managers, and people that maybe we don't conceive of having management and, and, and leadership roles in, in quite the same way, and how much we could do to help them um, it's been a big theme that's come 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 through from this, and that that then raises the question of what do the people who are the managers and, and people responsible for running these organisations need to do to help uh, to create that environment um, which uh, in, in which people can can flourish. Nigel, thank you very much for those uh, concluding remarks. Um, I think it's been a really helpful, insightful session, and it's clear that it's a complex problem with many dimensions to it. But it's also clear that. There are solutions and there's a willingness to engage with them. Um, we have part of a strategy. We probably need a full strategy and we need a plan with numbers. So um, there is potential to move forward and, and uh, let's hope that's achieved. Uh, but I think there are, I've, there are four phrases or words that, that kind of stuck with me throughout this session. Number one is flexibility. Um, we certainly need that. We certainly need innovation. Um, we also need long-term hope. Uh, but finally, it seems to me that what we need most of all is, uh, I, I know it's described as political bravery, um, but I'd probably say just uh, political common sense. <laughs> um, if we could have that, you don't need to be brave. It's the right thing to do. Um, we need a plan. We need a plan with numbers. We need a, we need a proper strategy. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm Cameron Abassi, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. Goodbye.